Hey, it's Uppity Women. This is Stephanie Harris, your host. Our guest today is Hannah McAllister. She hails from South Bend, Indiana, and went to school at the University of Virginia and then got a master's at Arkansas Tech. She came to Arkansas to work for Teach for America, and she was there for almost eight years. So she started as a teacher in Stuttgart and then became a manager of teacher leadership development, a teacher coach. She did teacher leadership development, an application reviewer, white aspiring allies, community coach. She also taught English in Peru. But most recently, well, fairly recently, she was the campaign manager for Jared Henderson, who ran for governor of Arkansas as a Democrat. He unfortunately lost, but Hannah learned a whole lot, especially as someone who had never worked in politics. And what a fun experience to run a gubernatorial campaign. But you'll hear more about that. She is a yoga teacher and uh, figuring out what she is doing next. So I'm glad that she stayed in Arkansas. I'm excited to see what she does next. And hopefully she'll come back and talk to us again. So enjoy the episode. Yeah, so I'm uh, working at a couple of yoga studios, Barefoot over in Riverdale, and then this new one called Numa that's out in uh, Pleasant Ridge. Mm-hmm. And then I'm doing some contract stuff for TFA, mostly interviewing potential future teachers and then potential summer staff members. They have a big summer training institute that's like a boot camp that they screen really hard for. And then I am trying to also figure out what political things I want to work on. So I've been doing a bunch of sort of informational interviews and then working with Jared and some other folks to figure out what he's doing next and what role I'll play in that. So yeah, figuring out um, yoga slash politics slash education slash whatever else. Yeah. I was just looking at your LinkedIn page uh, just to get a little more background on you and Go ahead and kind of give me your your background. Like, where are you from? Tell me about your family. How'd you get to Arkansas? Oh, my gosh. All right. So I'm from South Bend, Indiana. The high there today is negative four. So <laughs> I'm not upset to be in Arkansas today. But I grew up there and my family says I just threw a dart at the map. I wanted to go somewhere far away for college. So I went where I got the most uh, financial aid, which was University of Virginia. I studied English and Spanish. I never wanted to be a teacher because all the women in my family for a lot of generations had been teachers. So I wanted to do something cool and nonconformist and social justice-y. And uh, and I didn't know what that was, but that was my my thought. And then I heard about this Teach for America program and I was very hooked. And I realized that I had been kind of an asshole and that all these badass women in my family had been doing social justice work for a long time. I just didn't see it that way. So I threw a dart at the map again and checked the box on the application that said send me anywhere. And they sent me to Stuttgart, Arkansas, rice and duck capital of the world. So I taught fourth grade there for a couple of years. And I was planning to just a two-year program. I was planning to do the two years and get out, go to the big city, uh, maybe D.C. or Chicago or something. And um, I loved it so much. I met really, really incredible people. I felt like I had gotten a lot more than I had given. I just kind of had that feeling that I wasn't done yet. So I moved to the big city of Pine Bluff (laughs) up the road, Um, had a coffee shop and a movie theater. So it was pretty big time. And I um, was working in the school system there as an instructional coach with Teach for America. So I lived there for a couple more years, coaching, developing new teachers. 
And then I moved to Little Rock and lived there for four years. And that's when I first met Jared. So I was leading our teacher support and development wing. So I was working in about 24 different school districts and overseeing all the all the programming. So we bring in all these new teachers from all over the country. Most of them have never been to Arkansas before. Most of them are not ed majors. And so obviously they have a lot to learn. And so my job was to give them the the training and the support and the coaching that they needed to be able to be successful in their two years in their classrooms in rural Arkansas. You you said you were in Little Rock for four years, and that was in the more administrative role? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you weren't teaching during that time? That's right. Yeah. I was spending a lot of time in classrooms, but I wasn't actually teaching. I was supporting a couple hundred new teachers per year. Right. So was Jared already there when you got there, or did he come along while you were in that position? So Jared, <laughs> I met Jared um the end of my time in Pine Bluff, right when I was about to move to Little Rock. And when I met him, he had just given himself a massive demotion from being a senior vice president at Teach for America to being an executive director. So he'd been managing a bunch of executive directors and he moved down a rung on the ladder to be an executive director because he was so passionate about Arkansas. And there's an opportunity to split up. Um, When I was in TFA at the time, it was called the Mississippi Delta region and included both Mississippi and Arkansas. And there's an opportunity to split the two states up and have just an Arkansas region. And so when I first met Jared, I was like, this guy is either totally nuts or he is the real deal. And so, you know, I talked to him and was trying to figure out if I was going to stay in Arkansas or Mississippi or what. And I I really liked him. He had a really clear vision. Um, he was super passionate. He had a lot of big ideas. So I decided to stick around and work with him. And I ended up working with him for four years and just found him really visionary, really inspiring, um, really empowering, like a straight white guy who knew what was up with diversity and inclusiveness and all of that. So yeah, that's how I met Jerry. We'll get to that when we start talking about the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what was your... I often wonder when I come across CFA folks, uh-huh. what their impression is of the state because you come into these probably... Are they all low-performing schools? Uh, they have to have a certain um, like poverty index level to have CFA teachers. So yeah, most of them are really uh, under-resourced, underperforming. So you, I would guess, kind of come into this sort of stereotypical poverty-ridden area of Arkansas. You know, the people we see on the news when anything bad happens. And talk to me about your impressions of the state and how, if if and how they changed. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's interesting to frame the question that way because coming into it from a school perspective, it didn't feel like that to me at all. Like my, the school that I taught at in Stuckart, yes, was under-resourced, yes, was underperforming, um, yes, had a really high free and reduced lunch population, but kids are kids everywhere. And, uh, the kids that I met were really amazing. Their, their parents and their families were really awesome, very involved, like wanted all the same things for their kids that my family and the families that I went to school with wanted for, you know, wanted for me and for my friends. And so the biggest culture shock to me wasn't living in an area with high poverty. The biggest culture shock was just living in a small town. Uh, If I go to Walmart, I'm going to end up having like five parent-teacher conferences in the frozen foods aisle because (laughs) that's where everybody goes. Or if I you know, go to the Sonic, I'm going to, you know, see some of my, my students, older siblings or whatever. That kind of just the tiny close-knit community was the biggest shock for me. Um, so I think my initial impressions of Arkansas were, 
you know, I'm really positive. Like I, I genuinely loved my principal at the school. I learned a ton from the other teachers I worked with, especially my mentor teacher who had taught fourth grade for like 12 years before I got there. But living in a small town was definitely new. I thought I was from a relatively small town, but it turns out my hometown's the same size as Little Rock. And it's actually very large and well known. Um, so yeah, just living in a in a more rural kind of farming community, having to drive an hour to get to a Target or a Starbucks was the bigger shock, I think. Yeah, I mean, South Bend has one of the most famous universities. I know in the world, probably. <laughs> no, Notre Dame for for any of you. Listening, who who may not know what I'm talking about, but so yeah, so I guess maybe that says something about me that that's what I focus on is what I assume my own stereotypes of people, because when I came to Arkansas, you know, I, I mean, I was in Little Rock and I had lived here before, so I went to high school here for one year. I graduated from Central and then I moved to New York. And but when I came back in '07, I was just going to finish school and leave because it just was not where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's why I come at it from that perspective. I talked to Trish Flanagan and I was just editing her interview with me for the podcast and she started future school, the charter school in Fort Smith. That's awesome. What, what she said was to her, the biggest problem in retention and success is, is motivation. And that so many kids just lack the motivation to be there. And so that's the biggest challenge in her mind is getting kids to understand, to give a shit basically, and to understand that if they can just stick it out, it's going to be better for them in the long term. and really making them partners in their education and looking at, his, at her perspective or her kind of model is more entrepreneurial based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I love Trish. I love the future school. I think she did some really awesome things there. And I certainly agree with the part about kids being partners in their own education and having opportunities to innovate and be entrepreneurial. I think that that is really important. I didn't see it as a motivation problem. I saw it as a more the importance of teachers who are able to see potential in kids and then give them opportunities in the classroom to tap into that. And that might sound really lofty and high level, but to me, I really haven't met kids that are inherently unmotivated. I've met hundreds of kids that feel like school is not a place for them and school is a place that's really oppressive or that's really boring or that doesn't challenge them or that is just there to slap a label on them or make them take take a test and then tell them what they're worth based on a, a number or a score. And so I think that that's why I spent so much time in the sort of teacher prep and teacher development side of things, because I think when kids have teachers that are able to see the potential in them and then find ways to tap into that, whether it's through a project or a leadership role or an extracurricular or whatever it is, that can just make such a huge difference. But to me, I I would argue that it's not that kids lack the motivation. It's that they lack... They've had some experiences in a system that is designed like a factory to weed out the kids that are not going to be productive workers in our society. Um, And that's very limiting. And so when kids have somebody that can see their potential and give them a way to tap into it, I think that makes makes all the difference. So when you when you are in a system that is so test focused, you know, this kind of factory, the way you describe it, how do you give them opportunities to really shine the way they're they should be able to? Mm hmm. Um, I think everything starts with relationships. And that's, I was talking about all these awesome non-TFA teachers that I met in Stuttgart, especially my mentor. Um, And I think that's one of the biggest lessons I learned from them. 
the relationships that they had in that community were just so much deeper than the ones I was going to be able to have as an outsider, especially in the beginning. But being able to connect with individual kids and be like, I see you. I know what you're capable of. I know your family. I know, you know, I know all of these things about you. I know who you really are down deep at your core. I think that part is really fundamental. And then I also think being able to allow kids to form opinions, to problem solve, to uh, say yes or no, to have discussions in class. So getting rid, getting away from the culture of just like worksheets and tasks and repetition and moving towards things that allow kids to read, to write, to think, to speak, to do things that are challenging and creative and fun. I mean, that's mm-hmm. like as a, you know, 31 year old woman, like those are the things that that I enjoy doing in my jobs. Like when I have the opportunity to do that stuff, that's not just rote procedural memorization type stuff, but that really lets me tap into uh, my brain power and, and form opinions about things. I think that makes a big difference too. And then the other thing I'll say is sometimes with, you know, the culture of our schools and accountability and testing, some, some of that stuff you're just going to have to do, but finding ways in or out of the classroom to let kids tap into that, I think also really matters. So one of the reasons I, loves Jared and decided to go work for him for so long is because I had this idea for a student leadership initiative. Well, really two of my teachers that I was supporting in Pine Bluff had this idea. And they're like, hey, we have all these kids. We know they have a ton of potential, but they're not in band or football or cheer. And there's no other extracurriculars at our school. So they just leave school and go get in a whole bunch of trouble. And we feel like if there's something else for them to do they might be able to use their energy more productively. Mm. So they started this dinner series where teachers would pick one or two kids from their class and say, hey, come on a Wednesday night, wear your church clothes. And um, we're going to talk about leadership. We're going to give you a certificate saying, you know, we see leadership potential in you. Um, and we're just going to see what happens. And it, it went really well. Teachers were coming back to me saying, it's been a month and this kid has totally changed their behavior in my class. And all it took was that one like pizza night in the school library. And my old boss before Jared was like, okay, that sounds fine, but that can, that's your side project. Focus on you know what your, your goals of your actual role at Teach for America. Get that stuff done. And then if you have time, you can work on the student leadership project. When I told Jared about it, he was like, this is literally... This is what education should be all about. Like, This is amazing. How can we center this? How can we make this a bigger part of our overall regional strategy? Like, We need to expand this program. We need to make it bigger. We need to make it more. Um, and so under Jared's leadership, we expanded that program to hundreds of kids in Arkansas. We had kids who started community gardens. We had kids who started race dialogue, getting kids from different social cliques who wouldn't normally have conversations about race, class, and privilege to talk to each other. We had a group in Helena that has recorded two 10-track albums. Their whole thing was like they built a recording studio in their English teacher's classroom. And they were like, people think Helena is terrible. It's actually not. We need to get the word out about that. So yeah, that's I kind of went off on that one, but that's one of the big things that inspired me about Jared was him being able to say like, yes, this is a way that we can that we can leverage this to give kids more opportunities outside of the classroom than they might otherwise have. You know, that is a good segue because I, well, first of all, I think I was conditioned to think that everyone should go to college, and uh-huh. I have come around on that. We all have our different ways of, you know, achieving whatever success looks like to us. But so I, I like the idea of finding these kids who may not be in band or cheer or may not be on the college track at the moment, but mm-hmm. we can see that potential in them. And it also just gives them ideas, mm-hmm. you know, different ways to think about themselves. But also I like this because 
one of my, and, and let me just say that I have very limited knowledge or experience in the education system as far as its structure and how it works. But one thing that annoys me about the public schools is that they're not allowed to be nimble and try and be innovative and try different things. That apparently is what charters are supposed to be for. And this is something that, that Trish talked about too. She's like, well, if we're allowing waivers for who's allowed to teach in charter schools, then doesn't that make that requirement kind of arbitrary? You know, why is it okay, you know, for us to not have a, a you know, a licensed teacher? Um, I, I don't know if I'm using the right words. Uh-huh. Uh, why is it okay for us, but then it's not okay for the public schools? So, you know, what you're talking about these programs in TFA, why can't that be done in the public schools, just in the regular educational system? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's the right question to ask. And just to be clear for me, all, everything I just described was in 95% traditional public schools. CFA, we place a few teachers in a couple of charter schools, but we're mostly in traditional public. And so this was all teachers employed by their school districts who just also happened to be part of Teach for America, going to their principals or their vice principals or whoever and saying, Hey, can I start that? My kids want to start a community garden. Can I do that? Like my kids want to build this recording studio. Is that okay? And I was really um, kind of surprised, but very inspired by how many school leaders were like, yes, please, like, please go ahead and do that. Um, I think our school, our administrators take a lot of heat um, in public schools for their failings, but they are often like very open to innovation and different ideas. They just don't always have the time, headspace, capacity, whatever, to run those programs or to come up with those ideas on their own. Um, but in my experience, they're often very, very receptive when teachers come to them with an idea, especially if that idea uh, has originated from the students to say like, hey, we, we want to make this happen. Okay. So just to clarify, when you talk about Jared saying, yeah, run with this, mm-hmm. well, he was running, teach, he was ED of Teach for America, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So then how, I'm confused okay. about how that works. So the way Teach for America works is we recruit all these teachers in, but we're placing them in mostly traditional public schools. So they're employed by the school district, but they're right. concurrently um, members of Teach for America. So Jared was like, yes, take this idea and run with it. And what that looked like was our teachers going to their administrators to say, hey, I want to be part of this Teach for America sponsored program. Can I work with my students on it? But it, okay. kind of, it was like a partnership between all these school districts and Teach for America where we like we were the original, you know, we funded it. Um, we were the ones that held conferences where kids from all different school districts could come together and share their ideas. But a lot of the work had to happen at the individual school sites. Um, and that was usually through our teachers going to their administrators and saying like, hey, can I have your blessing to run this program and to have our school be a part of it? Okay, I understand. So basically, Jared was almost giving permission to be innovative to try these things. Now, Mm -hmm. whether or not a principal or administrator allowed it was up to the local school. But but what I'm hearing you say is that most were really open to these innovative ideas to get kids engaged in different ways. Yeah, I mean, we I've literally never had an administrator say no. Um, we had some that were like, do we have to pay for it? You know, what's the, what's the catch? This sounds too good. But we never had anybody be like, no, we don't want our students to be part of this leadership program. It was just a question of like, okay, what are the logistics? Who's going to run it? Uh, when do you need buses or other resources to be able to make some of this stuff happen? I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but I, and I know you heard the same complaints about, I'm going to just say traditional teachers kind of complaining about these TFA kids who, you know, maybe come from privileged areas and they get dropped into, you know, West Helena, 
is there some sort of tension between that, uh, what I would call the traditional teachers and the TFA teachers who don't necessarily have, have studied pedagogy, you know, and how to teach yes. as, a, as, a, as a base education? Yes. So I think it depends. So my ex- personal experience was a little bit unique because I was in the first group of Teach for America teachers ever to be placed in Stuttgart. So it wasn't like there was this long legacy or they had all this past beef or any bad experiences with Teach for America teachers. They were like, wow, we have a teacher shortage here. We were having a really hard time filling it. All these people just got placed in our school. Like, thank God our students have teachers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they also were like, why on earth would y'all move to Stuttgart, Arkansas from Indiana, California, North Carolina, wherever? They were like, thank y'all so much for being here. Like, this, this is great. And then I think from there, it just completely depends on how the TFA teachers choose to show up and represent themselves. So yes, there are definitely some that are like, wow, this school must be garbage. And that's why I'm here. And it's my job to come in on a white horse and save everything. Those teachers usually do really poorly. um, And many of them, you know, don't end up making it because they're not able to build the relationships necessary to be successful in their classroom. I think there are way more TFA teachers that come in and are like, wow, this is this is a huge systemic problem. I definitely want to be part of the solution. I also know that I'm missing a ton of cultural capital from not being from this community. So like, who do I need to meet? What relationships do I need to build? What can I learn from the people that have been here working on this for probably longer than I've even been alive? And I think those are the teachers that are ultimately way more successful because they're able to build those bridges and build those partnerships and not see themselves as a savior, but see themselves as like one part in a much bigger web of people that all want the same things. Yeah, I love the way you frame that. That's right. So I'm going to just put a pin in that because I also want to talk about your experience with, I saw on LinkedIn, you did training on, I guess, being a white ally. Yes. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly what it was called, but I want to, I do want to get to that. So you are in this job, you work here for four years and then, and then what happened? <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> so I know you left. Yes. <laughs> so then I got restless and I was like, I've been in the same place for too long. I didn't mean to spend eight years in Arkansas. I need to get out. Um, I need to leave Arkansas. I need to leave Teach for America. I need to leave education. I need to just go do something completely different. So um, I quit my job. I sold almost all my stuff. And I went to South America with a backpack. I was teaching English a little bit in rural Peru. So I wasn't too far from education, but I was in a obviously completely different context. And then I was just backpacking. So I went to Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Bolivia, just all over South America. And I was planning to travel for about a year and just kind of get some headspace, get away from everything that had been really familiar to me and figure out what I was going to do with my life. That planning to be gone for a year, I made it about two months when Jared guides me when I was in Bolivia. And he was like, Hey, you know how you always told me you'd help me out if I ever decided to run for office? And I was like, yes, I thought we had another five to 10 years on that plan. <laughs> and he was like, no, I'm, I got to do it. happening now. I need you to come back and manage my campaign. Wow. And I was like, Lord. Yeah. So a uh, testament to how highly I think of Jared, I bought my plane to get back to the U.S. about three weeks after that conversation. And I was back home about six weeks after we talked, total outsider to politics, had been engaged politically in a little bit and cared about politics, but had never worked on a campaign before, but would, you know, follow Jared off a cliff and think he's a really amazing leader and align so much with his vision and his values and all of that. So 
came back. My friends made a lot of fun of me because I hadn't even changed my car tags yet. And they're like, we knew you weren't going to be gone that long. And I lived in an Airbnb for a year because I was still trying to convince myself I was just back for the campaign. And then I was really going to leave Arkansas and go start my life somewhere. But I was wrong about that. I <laughs> signed a lease on an apartment last month and I live Yay. in Arkansas. I'm glad. I'm glad you're still here. Thank you. um, it does have a way of sucking you in and it won't let you go. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going on 22 years now, I guess. And it's just, it amazes me every year. I'm like, God, I'm still here. But I like it now. I'm I'm happy to be here as long as I can travel. Obviously, you have this strong connection with Jared. You believe in his leadership and his vision and his desire to make Arkansas a better place for everyone. But what gives you the chutzpah to think, yeah, I can run a a gubernatorial campaign? I mean, (laughs) what what really drove you and gave you the kind of confidence to do that or courage? Um, such a great question. I don't know. I think the very honest biggest answer to that is just that I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't realize what a big deal I was going to be and how impactful that role was, which probably sounds really stupid to anyone who's listening and knows anything about anything about politics. But if you keep in mind that I was a huge outsider and Jared was like, you have built organizations from the ground up before, like, you have supported huge teams of people. You have, you know, gotten things done, even when it's really messy and complicated. Like you have all the right skills. You're just going to transfer them to a new industry. He also sent me this ebook, which it's not actually called running a campaign for dummies, but it was basically running a campaign for dummies. Mm-hmm. And I read it while I was in Bolivia and was like, okay, yeah, this, this makes sense. Like I know I have an immense learning curve, but the work itself of, you know, having a vision, like designing a vision with a group of people and setting a strategy in place and managing data and working towards that vision and managing people and building relationships and raising money. Like that was all work that I had done before. And granted, it had been in education, not in politics explicitly, but I knew that I had the skills. I would just have to learn this new context, this new set of circumstances, new group of people to kind of apply those skills. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> I mean, I fucked up a lot. Like, I also yeah. made many, many mistakes, but I think it was a combo of um, being able to see the skills transfer and then also not understanding fully what it was I was getting into. Well, and maybe that's better. Yeah, yeah. So, look, going back, I mean, let's just take Jared out of the picture because I love Jared too. I mean, I, I would probably do anything as well. But if you could go back, if you knew then what you know now, do you think you would have done it? I think I would have been much more intimidated. But yeah, I, I think I still would have done it. I'm really glad I did it. And I think I I learned more in a shorter period of time than any other time in my life, except possibly when I was first becoming a new teacher. We go to this five-week summer institute. It's like teacher boot camp. I think the campaign was like nine months politics boot camp for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I learned so much. I met so many amazing people. I stretched myself. Like some days I felt like I was doing an absolutely terrible, god awful job. But now that everything is over and said and done, there's definitely things I wish I could go back and do differently. But overall, I'm really proud of the campaign that I run. I'm really proud of how people think about Jared now. I'm really proud of, you know, the rest of my team and um, what an awesome job they did. So despite our loss and despite the mistakes, I still, I feel good about it. As you should. It's, it's incredible what you did in those, on those days when you were fucking up or when you weren't feeling good about how or what you were doing, how would you, would you just go to sleep and wake up and start over? Or did you have a support system you could, you know, lean your head on their shoulder? Yeah. Yeah. Did you have I a think, village? 
Yes, I certainly, certainly have a village. I had a lot of friends and colleagues and acquaintances from East for America that were still in Arkansas. And then my family was really supportive. My, I have two older brothers in particular who had both worked in one industry for like seven or eight years after college, quit, traveled abroad for a bit, and then totally changed direction. So they were obviously very, very empathetic and really encouraging of, of what I was going through. But yeah, I had a support system. I also had to remind myself that being a complete outsider gave me a perspective that was really unique. Most people in Arkansas politics, as you know, have been involved with Arkansas politics forever. And that is that is a unique strength that I don't have. But I was able to look at things completely differently and say, well, why does this happen that way? And if the answer was, well, that's just how we've always done it, I was able to say, like, but why? We don't have to do it that way. Like, let's change that. There's so much autonomy, so much freedom. And there seems to be a big culture of just you know, doing things the way they had always been done. And I was able to to notice that. And in some cases, it was like, okay, yeah, let's let's keep operating this way. And in some cases, it was like, well, maybe we could change that. And then I also had to surround myself with people that had the knowledge and relationships that I didn't have. So like Abby, my communications director, basically came out of the womb working on campaigns. Mm-hmm. And she's younger than me, but she's worked on campaigns for, you know, the past decade in a lot of different parts of the state and in a lot of different roles. And so she was also an example of somebody that was really invaluable because she she just got it. She was able to anticipate things that I couldn't. She was able to explain to me how certain events or certain traditions were supposed to go. And then she also was able to be like, yeah, but I bet you know we could change up this part of it or maybe we could think about this differently. How did you meet Abby? Um, how did, did I apply for the job? Yeah, I, I think so. Honestly, I need to ask her about our um, origin story. But I think she heard about Jared and was like, I want to get on that campaign. And somehow she was introduced to Jared and applied for the job. And then he really liked her and he introduced me to her. All the top staff in the campaign were women, right? Um, almost all of them. Yeah. So our finance director, our communications director, and me were all women. Um, and then our field director was a guy. Do you think that was conscious or was it really just the best candidate? Is that something you thought about? Um, I thought about getting the best candidates for every role and they happened to be women. Um, And I'm really happy about that. I'm also happy because... So what was conscious is both Jared and I felt like, okay, as as we're both outsiders to politics, we want to bring in people with as, as many diverse perspectives as we can. So whether that's diversity in terms of background like us or in terms of where people are from, what part of state, the state they're most familiar with, um, and then certainly in terms of we, we try to think about gender, race, sexual orientation and all of that. We did better in some areas than in others. But I think we were both really proud to have a team that was run by almost all women and that, you know, was really conscious about issues of gender, sex, sexuality and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't recall there being a lot of people of color. No, there weren't. And I really regret that. And I wish that I had done a lot more to hire a more racially diverse team. It's also part of like I was talking about my blind spots in terms of relationships. I didn't know when I was looking for campaign staffers and asking everybody I could possibly think of. It also was tough in general being somebody that was disconnected from politics and not having just a group of people that I could go to and be like, hey, trust me, trust Jared. This is going to be great. Like, come jump mm-hmm. on this campaign, quit your job, go without health insurance probably for like six to nine months, and maybe you'll have a job at the end, maybe not. So I think that was definitely one area where my not having been in in the political system before definitely hurt me. Do you think, and this may not be something you want to talk about, but I actually just recently had a conversation with some some women who were talking about increasing diversity within their political party, Mm -hmm. like their local party, and 
the will is there, but I think they don't know exactly what to do. And, and that is a conversation I do plan to have with people of color. You know, okay, we, mm-hmm. we say that we want to do this, but what are we not doing to bring us together? I almost said bring, bring you into the fold, but I don't want to, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you know the problem with that statement. Yeah. So uh, I guess in your experience in this campaign and traveling around the state and working with the party, both locally and statewide, is diversity a problem in, this, in the political structure? I think it's a huge problem, but I would say, like for this example, where we're talking about the racial diversity of my team in particular, I think the burden of that problem is on me entirely. Like, I think I should have done more outreach. I I don't think, I honestly don't think it's that hard. Like I've been at meetings where it's a bunch of white women being like, oh, there's so many white women here. Like, this is so bad. And it's like, okay, well, what are you doing? Like, there's so many groups out there that literally exist to champion causes of people of color. Why wasn't I going to the AKA meetings or the ACLU meetings or the NAACP meetings or whatever to say like, Hey, what awesome young people or what awesome people that have the you know capacity to work on a campaign do you know? Can I meet them? Can I get coffee with them? What recommendations do you have? Okay, I'm at coffee. What rec- recommendations do you have? Like help me widen my circle. And I did some of that, but I really wish I had done more. So I do think it's a problem, but I don't think it's this vast insurmountable problem that it can sometimes feel like. I think it's mostly just... um we all live in our little bubbles. And if we don't get out of them and go into spaces that are not designed for people like us, then we're just going to stay working with people that we you know, share a lot of identity and background with. Yeah, I, I sometimes think about like the number of Facebook I friend, friends I have who are, are people of color. And obvious, I mean, of course, I have quite a few black friends, but it's, and, and they're organic. I mean, I'm not collecting black people, but, but I do think about then, and I don't hang out much at all these days, but when I do, I think about who I'm hanging out with. It is almost always my white girlfriends mm-hmm. or white couples. And there is no reason for that. But at the same time, and maybe we can just jump right into this kind of being an ally or whatever conversation. At the same time, it also feels a little bit uh, I don't know what the right word is, but it feels a little weird thinking, oh, well, I'm going to I'm going to invite my black friends over this weekend. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how to be conscious about it without also feeling like I am like tokenizing. Being, being, yes. And being insincere about it, even though I like all these people. Yeah. Yeah. I have a ton of privileged identities, but the one that I have that's not privileged is being a woman. Obviously, you too. Okay. Mm-hmm. This podcast. So I often i know it's it's not the same so caveat on that but i put myself in the shoes of a woman and if there was a dude that i knew that was like man all my perspectives are so informed by other men and like i love my man friends and they're diverse in their own ways but like i really wish i had some more women around and you know assuming all of this is happening in like a non creepy non like mm-hmm. whatever dating or sexual type of way I would be like, awesome. I applaud you. How like, and and if a man approached me with that sort of ethos and with that, again, I can see that happening in a really tokenizing way where a guy's like, Hey, can you weigh in as like the, the resident woman and me being like, no, go after yourself. And then I can also see it being done in a way where a man's like, Hey, I genuinely, I'm trying to learn. Like I've realized I'm living in this bubble. Can you help me out? Um, and that would just feel really different. So I think Mm -hmm. some things for me to keep in mind are like, A, Arkansas is really white. (laughs) B, our society in general tends to be really, really segregated. And so it's one of those things where like, it's not our fault if we're living in these in these bubbles, but it is our responsibility. 
And so I am really thankful for my time at Teach for America because there is a huge focus on diversity and equity and inclusion. And part of what that means is that the teaching force that we bring in every year um, is usually about 40% people of color, about 60% white and diverse in a lot of other ways too, including socioeconomic status, et cetera. But I, I've been really lucky to have like a more racially diverse group of friends, colleagues, people that I work with, people that I know. And I think that's really helped. But I don't think there's anything wrong with with being intentional and um, trying to go to spaces that you might not always go to and trying to meet more people that aren't like you. I totally get how that might feel weird or awkward. But um, I think if, if your intent is good, then um, try something. You'll probably fuck up. White people fuck up a lot. <laughs> that's okay. So just right. know that you're probably going to get something wrong, but it doesn't mean you should stop doing it. Yes, and and fortunately, all my my friends know that I am I am willing to make those mistakes because they know my heart is in the right place and that I am learning as I go. Right, so I'm I'm very honest about my biases and prejudices. In fact, I even had a friend over recently to talk about the R. Kelly documentary because I kept seeing, you know, these the reaction from my African American or my black girlfriends or friends broke my heart in a way that I can't articulate. So I just, I invited her over and we drank some wine. I was like, I have to talk about this um, because I, I knew that I was, I don't want to say safe, but I knew that she trusted me to be coming from the right place because I was trying to learn about the perspective of black women. And I'll use an example that I used with her when Handmaid's Tale came out and all of us were, you know, freaking out and saying, oh my God, we feel this oppression, you know, maybe not this extreme, but like we could really relate to that show. And, mm-hmm. and she made a comment on this woman I know made a comment on Facebook that said, oh, y'all white women, this is how we black women have felt for 400 years. Mm-hmm. And I and I commented and I said, yeah, I said, it's interesting because I, I know that in my brain. But until I saw this show, and I'd actually read the book a few years earlier, but until I saw the show, I don't think I could empathize in the same way. Her response to that was, well, why do you need a show to be able to empathize with me about how I feel? Mm-hmm. And And it started this conversation. It was not a bad conversation. It was good, I think, to have it. But it was like, well, it's like, you know, you don't do the cancer march until you're affected by cancer. It's just, it's hard to, even though intellectually, I know about prejudice and institutional racism and all of those things. It's really hard to feel it in my gut the way I do if I feel oppressed about something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, and so I think that there are a lot of people who are afraid to have those conversations because it doesn't feel good. You know, yeah. when she, when she says, what's your problem, white lady? Why did it take this to do that? And yeah. I'm not afraid to have that conversation because yeah. I know it's part of my learning process. And but I do see a lot of people, too, who make people feel whether it's men talking to feminists mm-hmm. or, you know, the Me Too movement or whatever it is, or, you know, me as a white person trying to have this conversation or learn from black people. I know how it feels to feel bad when they respond to you in a way that's like, we're not here to make you feel better. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or or they just kind of shut you down or you, you shut down because that's how, the way you react to it. And I just think that there's so much of that going on and we're not, we're not listening to each other. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And the other thing you're making me think of um, when you're talking about like, you know, being willing to make mistakes, being willing to be wrong, like being willing to have tough conversations and all of that. There's also, I don't know if you are familiar with this or have seen it, but there's this like hallmarks of white supremacy, like tenets of white dominant culture. And that uh, resource has been invaluable to me because it helps me take myself out of it and not take things so personally in that situation. Because to me, one of the 
the root causes of what you're talking about is that um, we want to be perfect. We don't want to make like, and we meaning white people, white dominant culture. We want to be perfect. We don't want to make mistakes. We want to be able to think with our head rather than deal with our heart. <laughs> and there's all these things that have been baked in the cake of our society that we may not even be aware of. And we may not be aware that that's part of a larger white dominant culture. We may think that's just us and who we are and our personality and stuff like that. But I think it limits us from being able to let our guard down, make mistakes, not feel like we have to be perfect, be vulnerable, um, have emotions rather than just trying to intellectualize things. And so I think I think that's a part of it as well. Hmm. And what is it called? If you just, I can send you a link later. There's a, a okay. the author's name is Pima Oakum, but it's called um, White Dominant Culture or Tenets of White Supremacy Culture. And super interesting. And you'll probably laugh when you read it because you'll be like, oh, I totally do this. Like, I'm such a white person. Like, great. Now that I have this awareness, maybe I can work on some of that stuff. Yeah, I am such a white person. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to be woke. Okay, getting back to the campaign. Yeah. Talk about the, you know, sort of the, the good, the, the bad, the ugly. Like, what did you take away from it? Yeah. Okay, I'll start with the bad slash ugly. <laughs> okay. Um, I was thinking about this, knowing that it's, you know, up the women and a part of my perspective on here is as a woman, as a woman campaign manager and as a woman campaign manager who is totally new to politics, I got many kisses on the cheek. I got many come ons from people that were in powerful positions that I need to build relationships with. I often got mistaken for Jared's wife. I often got asked, oh, you work for Jared, right? Rather than like, oh, you're managing Jared's campaign, right? I think the worst sexism that I experienced on the campaign came literally on election night when a very powerful man uh, who I'd been working with throughout the course of the campaign gave me a big hug, which was super nice and was like, you know, you should be really proud. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And he's like, I've always told Jared, it was so brave of him to hire you. It was just a really brave thing that he did to hire you with your, you know, lack of experience and not knowing anything about politics. And I was like, well, you can go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think that some of the bad and ugly was just not being taken seriously. Some of that is totally warranted because people should be skeptical of me because I was new and I was from the outside. Um, And some of that was just utter bullshit and things that I uh, hope to not emulate as I move forward in the political world in Arkansas. So yeah, some of the bad and the ugly. I think the good though is there are good people everywhere. There are people that care about the same things we care about everywhere. Some of them identify as Democrats, some of them don't. The extent to which we were able to have genuine one-on-one conversations with people. So when Jared would meet people, and they'd be like, oh, you're a Democrat. I don't want to talk to you. He would always be like, no, well, what do you care about? Tell me about yourself. What's what's up? What do you do? What's your family like? And he was always, 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 without exception, able to find some common ground with, with that person. Um, and I was as well. So I think that was the hopeful, inspiring part is just the, the degree to which we're all the same far outweighs the degrees to which we're different. And so the ability to find commonalities with people and find ways to work together towards those commonalities, I think, uh, really matters a ton. And then I'd say on the, on the personal level, like I realize that my skills do impact transfer. Like I can do a lot of stuff now that I couldn't do a year ago. And I know a lot of people that I didn't know a year ago. And I want to be able to share that as widely as I can and to bring other people along who don't see themselves in politics, whether that's women, people of color, queer people, poor people, people who just don't care about politics and think that, think that politics has gotten too divisive and too yucky. I, I want to be able to share my experience and tell those people they have a seat at the table as well. How in the sharing common concerns and dreams, how do you scale those conversations? Because I think about that all the time. Mm-hmm. How do we get past the vitriol, the fear mongering, the politics of politics? 
Yeah. I think one thing that really sucks that I didn't know to be true before the campaign is, um, unfortunately, it takes money. I wanted us to have this amazing grassroots campaign, which in, in, some, in some modest ways we did. But without the money to scale the message, at least for a statewide campaign, you, you just can't. Like we couldn't knock on every door. You know, we couldn't have three million one-on-ones with people. I wish we could, but it wasn't possible. And we didn't have the resources to be able to, you know, share these ideas really at scale. Um, so I think money is, is honestly a huge part of it. And I think about money and politics completely different now than I did a year ago. And then I, I, but I think the other thing is people. There's this buzz phrase that's been going around of people powered campaigns. And I think the more people you're able to bring in, whether as volunteers, as staffers, as donors, whatever, um, those people each have their own little circles of influence. And those people that they talk to have their own circles of influence. So I do also still believe very much in the word of mouth, grassroots infrastructure building organizing. I think that is a big part of it too. Well, how how would you have if you if you had the money? How would you have used it to spread the message or to connect with people? Yeah, I mean, I think two ways. Number one, I literally would have just bought way more TV ads where we're able to say like, "Hey, we want to include you in this. We want you to be part of this conversation." Like, here are some of the ideas that we care about. I bet you care about them too. Um, but then I also would have just paid way more people to be able to play a role in the campaign. Like if I was able to, we had 10 summer fellows. I know you met a ton of them. They were amazing. They were some of the most talented people I worked with the whole time. If we had the money for a hundred uh, college fellows or college interns or a hundred high school interns or 200 more paid organizers working in their communities to have coffees and have house meetings and go out knocking doors and making phone calls with people. That's the other big investment I really wish we could have made. Is there something that people can do just outside of politics? Uh Is there something that people can do in their own little towns and their own little lives? Because one of the things that is so important to me, and it's why I'm doing this podcast, and I hope to talk to a wide variety of people with different ideas who come from different perspectives and experiences, instead of staying on your side of the block, what can people do to connect with others in their towns? Because, you know, I do believe we're divided really down to a very micro level. Mm -hmm. And and, and I, I think that's making it worse. I think that's why Trump is our president. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's why I'm not looking forward to the next presidential election. So what what can we do just to be kind to each other and, and try to work together, at least start the conversation to solve problems at a local level? I feel like that is such a big, huge, sticky question to ask me right in the last three minutes of our convo. <laughs> I'll give you two. I'll give you two really short answers. One is really woo-woo and you can cut it out if you want. And then one much more practical. Um, so... Number one, I think when we are more in touch with ourselves and who we are, we're better for the outside world. Well, that, that looks different for every people, figuring out who you are. For me, I meditate every single day. I literally take time to be like, what's going on with me today? How am I feeling? Am I super anxious? Am I super happy? Do I have energy? Do I not? Like, where am I at? And what am I putting out in the world? And if that doesn't align with what I want to be putting out in the world, what do I do about that? So that's my woo-woo answer. I think if everybody listening to this started meditating, their lives would probably be a lot better and they would probably show up differently and be kinder and have more compassion and all that. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm not cutting that. Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> keep it. Keep it. I hope it works. <laughs> um, I think number two, it looks completely different for different people. Um, my partner hates politics, which is sort of funny. He hates it slightly less now, I think, but 
uh, still kind of hates it. He plays on a soccer team every, every weekend and he interacts with people he never sees in any other spaces who have all, who, you know, come from a bunch of really different backgrounds. Uh, and that broadens his perspective, right? For me, it's like the different political-esque advocacy organizing things that I go to, trying to put myself in those different spaces. But whatever your interest is, whatever your passion is, I think when you pursue that, you're going to meet a group of people that you most likely would not interact with otherwise. So I think it sounds very, very generic, but leave your house, get off your couch, go to anything and see what you can learn. See what other perspectives are there that you don't share and figure out what, how, what to do about that. Yeah, I like that. I, um, I don't know how to articulate this. I like to learn about other people's perspectives because I think it strengthens my own. And uh-huh. and I am not necessarily out to change everyone's minds about things because I don't think that well, I don't think I'm entitled to everything I want uh, politically <laughs> or otherwise. Uh-huh. It would be great, maybe in the short term, but not really. And so that's why, you know, like, let's say the, you know, pro-life versus pro-choice conversation based on reading I've done about people who have come together to talk about their different perspectives, it's actually strengthened their positions, but it's made them more compassionate and understanding about the other side. And I think that that's just really important. And and I, I wish that we would do more of that. Well, I really appreciate it a lot. I'm so glad that you were in Arkansas and that we met. And um, I just cannot wait to see what you do next. And hopefully I'll be able to help you. So hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. Well, and I'll talk to you soon. Just keep in touch with me and let me know what you're up to because I'm I'm interested. Okay, definitely will. Thanks, Hannah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.